Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. She'd stayed with the expectations of her generation and never really ventured out of that, and she held my hand so tightly and fiercely one day and made me promise her that I would never do the same, that I would have the courage to live a life true to myself and to do whatever my heart called me to do. Today's guest, Bronnie Ware, kind of exploded into the published consciousness a couple of years back with a very simple blog post that she wrote. She had spent a number of years in palliative care, and she started noticing that there were common patterns, that there were common things and stories that they would share, and among them were a series of common regrets. And she shared the most common regrets in a post that absolutely exploded. It resonated so powerfully with millions and millions of people in the online world, which then turned around to become this huge internationally best-selling book. And... I had the opportunity to actually sit down with Bronnie as she came to New York and dive not just into the five regrets because, you know, those have certainly been covered a lot, but I got really curious 
What's the deeper story here? What was her journey? What brought her to that point? How has that changed her? And what does she plan to do moving forward? And it really turned into a beautiful conversation where I learned a ton, not just about her, but about what really matters in life. I hope you enjoy it as well. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. It's so fun to be hanging out with you. I'm trying to remember. I, th- I, I think I posted something that referenced something from you, right? And then you chimed in. And the comments, are, I'm trying to remember exactly yes, what it was. Yes, Do you, you remember said, what it was? I, I wonder if uh, Bronnie were, it was, it was something about how I structured my article and whether I was perceiving how, um, considering how it would be perceived afterwards when I named it what I did. And then someone brought it to my attention, one of my friends, and, and I, when I saw, looked on board, then I emailed you and said, no, I wasn't. You were right. I wasn't actually thinking yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, that's yes. right. That's right. I yes. think it was uh, the post on moving people versus creating content or that's something it, like that's that. That's it. That's right, it. Right. You're right. You're spot Yeah. And, yes. I, and I was referencing all these you know, like beautiful creators who really did it, you know, not because mm. they thought to themselves, well... Would this be a good formula? Like, would the five regrets be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to do that because maybe it should be seven regrets so yes. it goes more viral. And it was none of that at all. It uh-huh. was just writing it and uh, wrote what I was guided to write, and that was it. I, a seed was planted. Yeah. Did I know? That's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. So I want to take a little step back with you because, of course, you sort of exploded into the world's consciousness when you wrote about these top five regrets of the dying. We'll talk about them a bit, but I'm also really just curious about you as a person and your journey. My understanding, you grew up on a farm in Australia. Yes. What part of Australia? It's called Northwest New South Wales, so the New England area. Ah. And it's about halfway between Sydney and Brisbane on the Inland Highway. So Australia is, uh, the east coast of Australia is separated by a mountain range called the Great Dividing Range. And on the right-hand side, on the east side, it's it's lush rainforest down to co- the coast. The moment you get onto the west side, it's farming, wheat country, wheat growing country and uh, very dry. And so we're on the west side of the range. And, mm. uh, you know, but, you know, beautiful area, big mountains and... Uh, and big skies, really huge skies. You know, yes. it's funny. I, I have many years ago, I spent about three months backpacking and diving down the east coast of Australia. Oh, fantastic. I flew into Cairns and we went yeah. up to Cape Trib and just slowly worked my way down. And when we hit Brisbane, we I, I went about three hours inland to a sheep station mm-hmm. and just stayed there for, I think it was probably around a week. And I remember being there and... Just one night, literally just walking out into the open, lying on my back and staring up and being just gobsmacked, watching the stars literally <laughs> yes. like drop down to the ground, mm. you know, mm. with no light around. That's right. And you see stars from horizon to horizon. And it's it's just phenomenal. I, I used to do that as a child with my dog and we'd just go outside of a night and just lie there for hours. <laughs> Even as a teenager, it's a pretty good way for a a teenager to spend their, their evenings instead of running crazy in their own crowds or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so even out in the country in uh, Australia, they had the wrong crowds. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> I mean, tell me a little bit about what it's like growing up there, because it's so foreign to my experience. I grew up in a suburb of New York City. Mm, um, mm. 
Well, it was fantastic. From when I was seven, I, I knew how to drive. I was driving a tractor from when I was seven no years old. No <laughs> And we lived so far from the bus stop that all the farm kids surrounding, there are only um, two farms on our road, and that was about four miles long. But all the surrounding farms as well, they're all so far from the bus stop that we all used to drive old unregistered cars and park them at the bus stop. So from when I was 10 or 11 years old, I was driving a, a car to the bus stop <laughs> illegally, but everyone was doing it. And the and at the bus stop, there'd be six or seven old battered cars, and they'd just be left there in, on the side of the road for, in a paddock for the day. And then we'd get off the bus and drive home again. And so, you know, it was fantastic. And I, I always had a horse and could just jump on a horse and ride whenever I wanted to. And you know, for me, there was always a longing to discover the world beyond that. But at the same time, the way that love of space and the sky has affected my essence, it, it it's quite essential for my balance these days to to be able to have some sense of openness. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But it was it was a simple upbringing in in those ways. It was it was beautiful. Big yeah. sunsets, big sunrises. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's funny too because we're sitting here recording this in my home studio in mm-hmm. the you know like smack in the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> yes. We were just having a conversation before going on air about you know just the almost like mass chronic level of overstimulation that exists mm-hmm. in a city like this, and when you come up in a place where there is such stillness and such openness and such space, how, how does it affect you when you move into a place like this? It's affected me a lot more than I realised the last few days. I, I've recently, in Australia, I've recently moved to an area that's that's quite residential because I want accessibility, and but still within 10 minutes' drive I can be in cane fields by a river, so it's not extremely residential, but there are neighbours and suburbia and the sound of traffic in the distance. And I didn't think it bothered me that much. We've only been there a few months. But after four days so far in Manhattan... I'm just longing for silence, absolute <laughs> silence, and I'm thinking about my home and thinking, can I actually settle there forever? Because I'm realising how strong that longing for for silence is. I, I thought that my desire for accessibility was stronger than than my longing for silence. And But after four days in Manhattan, <laughs> I'm starting to think, oh, I just want to be in the bush somewhere. So um, I think that to live here, you you know, thankfully we're staying near Central Park. You have to make that, that conscious effort to, to get grounded in nature as regularly as you can. That's, that's the only way you can stay balanced, I think, in this environment. And it offers so much so many fabulous other things that we're here for a month and I'm, I'm certainly going to embrace it as much as I can but already in in the this first week I've realized how important it's going to be to to reconnect with nature as regularly as possible yeah yes. I so agree with that I mean it's one of the reasons why we picked where we live in the city is because mm. we have both the water and you know one of the largest green parks in the world two three blocks from me uh, but even with that, we've been working really hard on a bunch of projects on our side. And uh, we, w- we literally, we got in a car two weeks ago and just, we rented a barn out in Woodstock, New York, you know, two and a half hours out in the country with you know, a couple of acres of land. And we were still working. We weren't taking a vacation, but yes. we just needed to get out of the stimulation of the city to yes. just, you know, 
be away for a week to kind of just, yeah, I think it, we, we're, we're feeling it in our bones, in our body, in our nervous system. Mm, mm, yeah, and, and I think we have to listen to our bodies with that. We, we certainly do because it's uh, they're warning signals. Mm. And if we can maintain that sense of balance, then we can Im- really embrace all of the wonderful things cities do offer, but at the same time not lose ourselves in the process of, of the madness. Yeah. Mm, indeed. So speaking of losing yourself in the process of madness, <laughs> you, you and tell me if I'm correct or if I'm missing steps, please feel, feel free sure. to, to let me know. Yeah. You grew up in all this beautiful open space in, uh, in Australia and then somehow found your way into the world of banking, yes. which, which, which I had, when I first became aware of you, I, I, when I first saw that, I was like, wow, it kind of came out of left field to me. Yes, well... My dad was a songwriter and an accountant, and and in those okay, days. Okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I, I, I can't just let that go. <laughs> so you grew up on a farm with a dad who was a songwriter and an accountant. Yes, and, take and, me a little a, bit deeper into this. And, and a farmer as well. Started off being a songwriter and a guitarist. He was uh, a, a very well-known guitarist in the 1950s in the Australian one of the pioneers of the Australian country music scene. But he also had a great head for numbers, so he was a, was a historian as well, and then became an accountant. And so his main jobs were, as his main income was through accounting because initially he was gigging six days a week and then mum had a whole tribe of kids and she needed him home more regularly. And so he, he uh, went, he, he let go of a lot of his life performing and then became an accountant and just did songwriting on the side for a lot of the other musicians. And he was also a radio announcer as well. Mm. And so we had this very conservative, structured uh, lifestyle in some ways. We had the freedom of the farm, but but Dad had a Monday to Friday job. And But then on weekends or um, for extended times, we'd get all these what we call hillbillies, country music singers, turning up and camping on our farm for three to six months. Oh, and God, how amazing must that have been? Yeah, it was, it was fabulous. It's and like your own mini Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, all the time. As, as soon as one caravan would go, it'd be only a few months and there'd be someone else staying. And these were some of the fa- most famous people in the country music scene in, say, the 70s. And in those days, they used to just travel Australia in their caravans and they'd stop for three months write new songs, regroup themselves a bit, and then off they'd go again. That was the lifestyle. And so they'd all come into the house and say, oh, I wrote a great song last night, and Dad would get out his guitar and they'd play, and then he'd, he'd interview them on his shows or he'd play their music on his radio shows. And then they'd disappear, and then we'd just be this family with no music because Dad was really closed with it when other people weren't around. And so then we'd just be this regular family with an accountant as a father. <laughs> and then all, all of a sudden, phew, they'd come back again. It's like, oh, this is fantastic, you know. So, so I had those influences, those real polarities of, of the artistic life and the corporate yeah. conventional life. And so when I left school, in those days you pretty much – got married and had children or you went to college and you know I finished school in 1984 and so that they were sort of the options and my intention was to get a job for a year and then go to college but in that year I I got used to um, not studying and earning money and and moving in a whole different crowd and so 
that first year, my job, I I just uh, got a job straight from school. I went into a bank in my hometown and I said to them, I want a job in Sydney with your bank. And uh, and apparently my determination was, I don't know what it was, the guy just knew that I'd be okay with it and interviewed me, rang my parents, said, is it okay if we send Bronnie to Sydney for a job? And they said, oh, okay, fine, yeah. And so pretty much two weeks after I finished school, I... I moved to Sydney and lived with my grandmother and started my banking career and then spent the next 15 years fighting this call to be an artist and a creative person all because I thought I was meant to be a banker. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So what, what was what was that deeper call about? Like, Did you feel that you, even from the time you, you, know, you before you made that decision for, about banking? Mm, I think, well, the call wasn't that obvious to me at the time. What it what was obvious was my dissatisfaction in working a Monday to Friday life mm. and a life where I loved banking in the sense that I love customer service, so I loved people, but I didn't love the sales aspect of selling products I couldn't care less about. And so there was just this growing um, discontent and a very painful discontent after years. And so I kept moving from town to town. I became very nomadic and I think I didn't spend anywhere longer than two years um, in 27 years. So I I moved a, a lot and just uh, ran away from this restlessness until it caught up on me. And, yeah, so I, so I think it was just that discontent was, was my calling and it wasn't until I started working through that that I realised my calling was to write and inspire. And, yeah, and, and thankfully I finally faced the courage to do that, yeah. finally. <laughs> Yes. What's interesting to me too is that I mean, we tend to spend so. I think we're we're so ingrained to follow the expectations of others that even when we know that something's not quite right, and it seems like clearly, I mean, if you just had this enduring sense of restlessness, it's like it sounds like your approach to trying to to resolve it was to you know geographically move. Yes. <laughs> like maybe that's what's actually going on here. But I, you know, I've had so many conversations with people where we endure some experience of restlessness like that or dissatisfaction mm. for so long, and I often wonder, you know, like why, why, like why, why do we so often endure that for such an extended period of time? I think what happens is we've got to wait until it becomes too painful. We don't allow ourselves to be pulled forward by the thought of pleasure as much as be pushed forward by the feelings of pain. Mm. And, you know, it's, it is so much shaped by the expectations of others. And I knew if I left the banking industry that I'd, I'd be up for, for criticism and strong opinions from people who, um, who did influence me in those days and people in the family and, and other people. And... And it took a lot of a lot of courage and a lot of pain, you know, to actually realise that the pain was was unbearable. So that it was time, no matter how painful the opinions of others were going to be, they were never going to be as painful as my own pain in not being true to my own calling. So I think pain is is the bigger catalyst than pleasure. Rather than try and focus on how great it would be to have a job I loved. It took, in my case, and I think in most cases I've come across, it, it was actually when the pain becomes unbearable that you finally find the courage to, to make the changes. 
Yeah. yeah. In in your in your story, in your journey, was there a moment of sort of reckoning or awakening or was it just sort of, sort of a slow building and it just you hit a point where you just said no more? Oh, there were a lot of moments, but a lot of slow building also. Mm-hmm. I think the turning point was was one day I was reading Creative Visualization by Shakti Goyen. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think that's how I pronounce her name. I think so too, but I don't know for okay. sure. <laughs> so thank you, At least we're together on that. Yes, yeah. I was living in Perth in Western Australia at the time and I was shopping every week. I'd buy a book from a shop called The Inspiration Factory and I was catching a train back and forth to whatever my banking job was at the time, but it meant that I was reading a lot of books. And so in that book it said, make a list of what you're good at and what uh, you like to do. And... The only things that really fell in both were creative things like photography and writing and funnily counting money, but that was more to do with maths. I I enjoyed Mm. maths, but it was clear that mathematics wasn't actually making me happy because I was doing plenty of counting in banks. And so when I eliminated that, I realized that the only two things that fell in both were writing and photography that I, I was, I consider myself good at them, you know, and even admitting that to myself took courage. And I love doing them both. And it was a turning point because I thought, dare I think I could actually be a creative person? Like, am, am I one of, you know, do I fit in an artist category here? Hang on. You know, I've just spent all these years in banking and did really well in banking. I, I actually moved up the ranks quite fast because I, because I changed banks and locations so often, I had this vast experience. And so I was very employable in every new town so I actually had quite an accelerated career path and all of a sudden I just thought you know I might be an artist (laughs) you know could I really be an artist and and uh, yeah so from then I began collating all my photos and writing quotes with them and selling them at markets and it took from that point it took a couple of years uh, another year or two to start selling them at markets and then um, yeah I, I think it for another 14 years then I I kept going with that until I, I actually started making a living as a creative person but that led me through looking after dying people to fund my creative journey it led me through being a songwriter teaching in a women's prison teaching songwriting in a women's prison and becoming an author so it was that was a long journey as well but I think all of it was possibly that was probably the main turning point was was that Acknowledging that I, I'm actually an artist, not a corporate person. Mm. Mm. I mean, it, it's so interesting too because you were, you were brought up in a house with a dad who was essentially this role model of living both lives. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I guess you, you, the way you described it, you also saw him essentially give up the pure artistic life in the name of you know the nine to five, the business life. As soon as it was time to you know quote be a grown up and take care of the family with the exception of these artists who would pass through for a window of time and then yes. kind of vanish into the ether. But that it it seems like that, that still wasn't enough for to sort of like allow you the internal permission to say, well, I could actually step into this full time. It took quite a journey. You're spot on there because he didn't give himself that permission to yeah, it was almost it. Like the, the It was almost like the opposite. Yeah. yeah. And so for me to do that, it was basically going against everything, all, all of the examples that had been set for me growing up. And it was new territory, it was shattering the family mould, and all my siblings were in corporate roles as well. There, was, there were no artists in the family, despite all of 
mm. that that the dad was an artist and and a fabulous one you know he just denied himself that pleasure yes yeah, so so yeah you, you're right i i did have to um have to break those molds and and it was hard work yeah, yeah. And what's interesting also is that, you know, a lot of artists feel like for them to have the raw material to create their great work, whether it's writing or painting or photography, they've got to live a raw, tough life. They've got to endure life unfiltered, and which very often involves struggle. And there are a lot of people mm. who feel like to the extent where, you know, they need to actually, if they don't wander into deep struggle, they need to create it and to really do their best work. And to be exposed to suffering, deep personal suffering, you took an interesting route. You chose for the better part of 10 years, eight years or so from what I remember, to place yourself in the realm of intense suffering of others. Mm. Yeah, well, I was doing some intense suffering of myself yeah. at the time so, <laughs> as so ta- well. So ta- talk to me about how these, these play together and how... Yeah, yeah. well, I didn't realise, uh, and this is where we need to be reminded that life really is perfect. You know, I had no idea that when I went to work with dying people that it was actually hooked up to my creative journey. I initially became a carer so that I didn't have to pay rent or a mortgage so that I could work on my creative journey and I saw them as two very separate things one was to earn an income by doing a job with heart and then the other was my creative side and so through all of these years of looking after dying people I was trying to build myself up as a songwriter and working through my own healing but as the dying people shared their regrets with me and their own pain, I was healing levels of myself that I didn't even know needed healing. And their regrets gave me permission to break free of the boundaries that were holding me, you know, all of the, the locks I had around myself because I could see their anguish and their own suffering. And so because I was exposed to these lessons repeatedly over the years, I was able to incorporate them in, into myself and my own being. And it was just incredible the, the level of healing I went through with them without even being conscious of it, always conscious of it at the time. Sometimes I was, but uh, at other times I'd look back and realise I'd actually broken through another level of hindrances in myself, all based upon what they'd been sharing with me. Maybe we should give, just get a little bit of context before for those who, who sort of don't know your name or don't know your broader journey. You you spent um, some eight years or so in in palliative care, literally living with people who were were in the final stages of their life, first as a companion, and then eventually you know, even received training in palliative care, which which is literally being the person who's with somebody you know near around the clock as they're leaving the earth. Yes. That's, I mean, there's so much to learn and so much to dive into in that experience. But one of the things that comes to me immediately is just the personal toll that it can take on you to move through that process once. You know, you you would imagine so many people, it would just be so both profound yet, yet deeply emptying at the same time. But then to actually build a career where you do it over and over and over and over. Talk to me about this a little bit. I don't think I realised the personal toll it took to the full... I didn't realise to the full extent how much a toll it was taking until after... towards the end of that time, those Mm. years. 
Each time I'd be with someone, I knew that I gave my all, and I felt so blessed and honoured to be doing the role. So there was a lot of receiving as well. It wasn't all, all giving. And because the people I was caring for were dying and they were often fed up and certainly ready to die by the time they died, it made it easier for me to let go because I knew they were free then. Their, their bodies had um, stopped causing them pain. And so in, in that sense, there was always an element of relief for them and happiness for them. And there were always tears for me once they had died, but I deliberately would take a, a bit of time off, one, sometimes a few days, sometimes at least a week or two weeks even, before I'd take on another client. I was working for an agency, and so I I would make myself unavailable immediately after that um, because often once it got really close to um, the person's passing, they didn't want the other carers. They just wanted their main carer, which is mm. the role that I played. And so it was around the clock and, and really enormous, um, an enormous demand. Um, but I wanted to be there because I'd grown, I grew to love them. I was with them for some people only a few weeks but for most of them between eight and 12 weeks and so in those few couple of months we got to know each other really well because we weren't there's no room for trivia you're just straight to the core of important things and so I did grow to love my patients so individually as as well as you know as my role as their carer but I did have that break in between and then I'd go back and do some more, I'd go and look after the next person and then I'd have a break and then occasionally I'd just take a few weeks off and I was also doing a lot of house sitting at the time so I was relocating regularly and so if, if a house sit didn't come up, it often happened that I had nowhere to live after the person died and so I'd just take a few weeks and go and visit someone and really recharge and then I'd go back into the city for the next client and the next house sit and some of the clients I was staying with overnight but a lot of them I'd just do 12-hour shifts and then go home and come back again. So I'd go home at eight in, at night and come back at eight in the morning mm. which is pretty much living there anyway. Right. And uh, But like I say in those last, in the last week or two they often wanted me around the clock so it was um, it was an enormous personal toll, but the richness of my experiences kept that subdued until towards the end when I, I actually started heading to quite a big burnout. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> understandably. Yeah, I mean that's people who do that for life. I just I'm, I'm kind of awestruck by um, even and, and for even for the, the amount of time that you did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great practice of detached compassion. Yeah, you have to learn detached compassion, where you certainly feel compassion, but you have to understand that that's their path, and even the suffering at the end is a part of their journey, and it brings its own lessons. So, yeah, I, I think that that's really the only way you can look at that and not take it all, not take everything on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine is a, a neuroscientist and a physician and a psychiatrist, and he once described to me, he said, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is there's a difference between, and I don't remember if I'm going to get his languaging right, but he, I believe he called it cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Sure, yeah. And, you know, he said, he said emotional empathy is that you literally feel what the other person is feeling. Cognitive empathy is that you understand cognitively what they're feeling. You may have felt it yourself before, 
but you don't feel it simultaneously with them. And he said, he, you know, he said it's important to understand that, that distinction and to then be able to cultivate the cognitive and not just the emotional. Because if it's emotional and you feel what they feel on the, almost on the level they feel it, you know, you'll, you'll be similarly incapable of action to remove yourself from that. Whereas, you know, on the cognitive side, you can still be in service of. Mm. You know, you can feel it. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you're talking about. I think I grew from one to the other. I, yeah. I certainly started off with the emotional empathy uh. and I carried it. In some ways, I think that's what made me a good carer because I, I could relate to them on such an empathetic level. But at the same time, if I was going to endure and look after myself and truly be a good carer, then I had to learn the other way. And so over the years, I... I I certainly wouldn't say my heart hardened. If anything, my heart opened and softened even more. But yes, I did grow more from the emotional empathy into the cognitive, I think, which is in some ways just another form of detached compassion, another yeah, word for detached yeah, di- compassion. Diff- different language yes, and same yeah. experience. Yeah. Yes. So through that experience, and you write about um, one of the people uh, that you cared for, you became very close to, a woman named Grace. Yeah. And, and it sounds like that may have been a bit of sort of like the touch point that really started you thinking about what are some of the the big shared lessons through an, an experience that she shared with you and then a promise that she had you yes. made to her. Would you mind sharing a yeah. bit about that? No, for all of the patients that I looked after, she still remains my favorite, you know, mm-hmm. or one of my most favorite. I just loved her dearly. And she had um, stayed in a, an incredibly happy marriage um, under quite a dictatorship sort of relationship and uh, and then within a few weeks of her husband uh, having to go into a, a nursing home into um, because he was too frail she was diagnosed with terminal illness and so she never actually got to do anything that she wanted in her life and she had always thought that perhaps once he died she might get to do a bit of travel with her family or whatever and she was 86 I think when I met her yeah and her her illness was very aggressive as well and there was just no time she she didn't have even you know really a a few weeks to go shopping or plan a holiday it all just happened by the time she the dust settled from her husband going into care she was not feeling well and she was diagnosed and and it just took took hold and she was in a huge state of anguish for not having had the courage to to live how she'd wanted to live and she'd stayed with the expectations of her generation and never really ventured out of that and she held my hand so tightly and fiercely one day and made me promise her that I would never do the same that I would have the courage to live a life true to myself and to do whatever my heart called me to do and we were both crying at the time and and I promised her that I would and even without the promise, I would have anyway because I could feel her intense anguish and heartache. Um, it was just wrenching. And just she was just in so much pain and regret for the way she'd, she'd chosen to live her life or m- not made the choices, you know, and just let life carry her along. That, that had a, a huge enough effect on me that I would have honoured that anyway. But then I did also commit to prom- you know to a promise with her, and yeah there's there's no way I could have not honored that promise because i I've learnt through the pain of not only her but including her of people having that regret of just not honoring what their heart's calling them to do, and 
I've seen how how painful that is and there's no way I'm going to subject myself to that. So, you know, being shown that firsthand has helped me, has given me the courage to to break through whatever fears and conditioning I, I had around my own path um, to actually be now living an incredibly true calling. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's yeah that that day changed my life forever <laughs> yeah yeah it's um yeah i think in our culture we're so terrified of thinking about death visiting it in any way acknowledging that you know it it is the only thing we know for certain yes death and taxes right? in taxes yeah <laughs> You know, and, and, and Steve Jobs' sort of famous Stanford commencement speech is referenced oftentimes that, you know, death is life's greatest creation yes. because it reminds you that we are impermanent and the time you spend on the planet is, it's got to be spent well. But we don't like to go there. We really yes. just, I don't know whether it's, it feels too morbid to me. It's, uh, I don't like to go there. I don't like to dwell on it. But I do remind myself on a pretty regular basis just of the notion of impermanence, not just of me, but of, those around me because yes. um, you don't you just don't know well you, you don't and it's you know it it's great to face it it's it's such a gift to ourselves if we can face um, the fact that our time here whether you believe in reincarnation or not it doesn't matter what your beliefs are beyond the facts are that our time in this lifetime is finite you know it's it doesn't go forever and as you say the same of those we love and if we can actually recognise the that time is is a gift, you know, it, it's a such an immense gift, and it's not a an ongoing gift. And so, from that perspective, if we can face those facts, and for me, you know, being around dying people has made me look at the fact that sure, I'm definitely going to die. I'm not going to waste a minute of my life doing anything other than honouring where my my life's calling. And the beauty is that not only does our heart call us to a place that offers can offer us immense happiness it, it always calls us to serve anyway but first we need to learn how to honor our own calling because serving without honoring our own um, happiness is not balanced it's not going to bring happiness and life wants us to be happy so you know if we can face the fact that we are going to die and that now is is so this moment of now is is so important every moment of now not just when we've done this or when this happens but right now this is this is a a time of possibility this this very ball of time we've got in our hands right at this moment so you know by facing death it, it's it really can be a fabulous tool for living yeah mm. i want to go into what you also just shared which is you make a distinction between that which you're called to do and serving or being of service. Talk to me more about that. Yeah, sorry, I did go. Just because I think it's, it's, it's interesting, but I think, it's, I think I know what you mean by yeah. it, but I just want to make sure. And okay. I think it's a really important distinction. Okay. Well, you know, a lot of people feel that if they do what their heart want, what they want, which is what, you know, their heart's voice is, is their, their calling. And so if they honor that, that desire, they feel it can be selfish and and it's not at all because if you truly honor it each step reveals the next you don't know have to know all the 
the journey you just you know follow the next step and the next step and as each step reveals itself the more you're able to honor that voice of that that calling from your heart the more it then calls you to serve anyway because our happiness ultimately lies in helping others and we may not go into it with such um, noble intentions we may just go into it thinking well I've always wanted to um, I've always wanted to travel to this country I can't shake it there's just something about this country that makes me want to go there and so eventually you 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 go there and whatever um, feeling that's going to give you that's going to lead you to the next step it may help you realize okay you know I've got that out of my system now I'm free to actually do this or it might be what I've learned about myself through doing this trip is going to lead me to the next step ultimately it doesn't matter ultimately every step you take in honoring your heart's voice in some way or another will pull you to serving other people but if you just have a call to serve other people but you you suppress all, all the desires in yourself then you will burn out. I did that. I, I say this from first-hand experience because I was I was serving without honouring all of my own needs. I was trying to, and, it, and eventually, as I said earlier, I did. But, yeah, it's just one step at a time. Follow your heart's voice, and it will call us to serve because that's, that's the way the world works. We're, we're here to serve, and, and in doing so, we become our best self, and that's what life wants from all of us. But we can only become our best self by honouring our heart and, and serving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at some point, your creative world and your service heart also merge, and you're living a fairly private life, serving these you know, people who are in their final parts of life also as much as you can with whatever you have available, trying to honour that, that artist in you, that you know, inner creator, the writer and the photographer. And it seems like those two worlds meet when you decide to sit down one day and write about these patterns that you're seeing, the shared regrets mm. of the people who you've served for so long, which then ex- you know, you shared online and it massively exploded into the world's consciousness yes, as yes. You know, like top five regrets of the dying. What was it that moved you at that moment in time to say, I've seen this process enough times, I've seen the pattern enough times, that I need to sit down and use my writer's mind and my writer's voice to put these together and to turn around and share them? Um, it was life signposts, really. I had just finished working with dying people. I wanted to work where there was some hope. And so through one of the friends from one of my dying patients, I was able to secure funding to set up a program to teach songwriting in a women's jail, mm-hmm. and which was you know completely different but I thought at least I was earning doing something creative that was that was the next step and so I'd just begun teaching in in a jail and uh, I was playing as a singer-songwriter by then and um, and I was playing at a festival and an editor of a music magazine said write me a story about teaching in the jail and we'll publish it and so when I wrote this article I thought to myself, why aren't I writing more? I love writing, you know, I, this is crazy. Why? I've always written as a child and why aren't I writing? I was a songwriter, I was writing quotes that went with photos, but I'd never seen myself actually as a writer until that moment. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll start a blog. 
And uh, and so I put that article about the songwriting on as my first blog, and then um, took you know took a little while to set the blog up over a couple of weeks, and then I just thought, well, what do I write about now? And I was sitting outside on the veranda one day. I was living in the Blue Mountains at the time, uh, just west of Sydney, and uh, and I thought, what what am I going to write about? And I just got very clear guidance: write what you know. And I thought, okay, well, what I know is the effects that dying people have had on me and that's how it actually came up it wasn't that every person had regrets Um, a lot did more did than didn't but it was that the regrets that dying people had shared with me were what had the most profound effect on me for all of those years of looking after them so there was no consciousness at all of how the article would be received it was just okay well I'll write a blog and when I wrote down all the regrets and I'd also written a journal for all of those years while I was looking after the dying people so I had I had you know books and books of things they'd shared with me and uh, yeah so I just sat down and wrote wrote about their regrets because that is what had affected me most personally and and that was it and I posted it thought no more of it (laughs) got on with teaching and burned out a bit and yeah, and then about six months later, the the blog took off, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, and and just for those who haven't read, I've just printed out quickly what those five were, just so that I can share with people. Shit about my reading glasses. The first was what we had actually just spoken about, which is I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Um, the second was I I wish I hadn't worked so hard. The third. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And the fourth is, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And finally, I wish I had let myself be happier. Rather than sort of going into each one of those independently, because I'm guessing at this point you've probably had that conversation to death. (laughs) (laughs) I've been on the other side of the microphone sometimes. And and, and I think, you know, each of the five are beautiful. They're fairly self-evident and there are gorgeous stories around, around each of them. I'm curious. I love the fact that you wrote this and you put it out there also. And then it just sat. Yes. You know, yeah. and then just sort of out of the... Had you largely just forgotten about it and then out of the ether? There were a couple of people in the first few months found it and asked could they share it, and I said yes, as long as it comes back with a link to sure. my blog. And I just kept writing. I think a lot of things come in life, or everything in life, comes down to readiness and timing. At the time that I wrote it, I wasn't ready for the success that it was going to offer me. Hmm. So after I looked after the, uh, taught in the jail, coming from dying people to teaching in a jail, I then burnt out and went through a period of suicidal depression. So mm. it was a huge burnout. And so it was only after I was pulling myself through that, and, and in that time I moved to a farm and lived by a creek and really dropped out for a while. So it was only as I was coming through that and I was, I'd been writing a blog all the way through and... Um, I was I was a lot clearer in my writing journey then, and that's when it took off. And so I wasn't. I, I had to go through that catharsis of healing before I was ready to deal with the level of exposure that the article was going to bring my way. I, I didn't have any more to give, and had the article taken off when I first wrote it, it would it would have killed me emotionally because I I just didn't have anything else to give. And in that 
six months of, of burning out, I I had I wasn't capable of doing anything but learning how to nurture myself instead of giving to everyone else. I had to to learn to give to myself and uh, and and fight all those parts of myself that didn't know how to receive and. So it was only once I received, uh, reached that place of readiness to receive and to be able to accept that life was calling me into a more public role um, that then the doors opened. And, and it was pretty much as soon as I said, okay, life, I'll do, you know, whatever you want, God, just I'll, I'll be your instrument and whatever message I'm meant to share with the world bring it through let's do it and little did i know it had already been brought through i just mm. and and it was almost instant after that the the article took off and uh took off <laughs> took off in a huge <laughs> huge huge way it's something like eight million views in the first three years so it was wow yeah which is astonishing <laughs> it's surreal right <laughs> yes. um are, are you open because i'm curious what what you said you you moved into a place during those six months of of suicidal I guess what they would now call suicidal ideation and deep depression yeah um what because it seemed like you had already made a decision to leave the thing that had really been emptying you and try and transition to yes yeah what what was it that kept deepening you into that place then and and how did you how did you move out of it what what were Uh, what made the transition I I think that I I had so much um, pain. I was still carrying burdens of pain from my past. I'd, I'd been a black sheep, and and I, I had to give myself permission to be the black sheep. What do you mean? Tell me what you mean by black um, sheep. The, uh, it might be an Australian thing, like the black sheep in the family, the yeah. the one that stands out amongst everyone else. That you're different to the rest of the clan, and so. You know, I was the artist in the family. I was the nomadic one. I wasn't settled. I was restless. I was all of these things, which, in hindsight now, it's like as who I am now. It's like great, fantastic. You know, but back then I was so shaped by the expectations of others and the fear of more ridicule if I dared to step out and be who I was that I had to be completely. I I had to be shattered completely. To, to really get rid of those that shell around me and to let my true light shine and so I think that's why I did slide down that far even though I thought I was already moving forward by teaching in the jail it was only yeah just a, a temporary medication on top in a mm. way I, I had to I had to go through I had to go to the bottom to come to the top you know to to start a brand new path and and I did and I I what I, what I did through that time was I wrote a lot. I hung out with the seasons. You know, I just, I had a creek flowing. I was on a 2,000-acre farm, found an amazing little cottage to rent. Um, and I just moved with the days and the rhythm of nature. I cried solidly. You know, I think, well, with depression, you know, I, I didn't didn't realise I had it. I was just had a lot of tears and then I went and sought help. And uh, my counsellor said to me, uh, um, you've got, you've obviously got depression, and I'm like, I haven't got depression, you know, and I'm crying, and and I said, oh, the doctor reckons I've got depression. I don't have depression, and she's saying, well, is this happening? Is this happening? Do you? And, and I said, yep, yep, yep. You know, I don't have the energy to give anymore. I just can't be bothered. I, all I want to do is cry. I don't want to eat properly, or whatever. 
I wake up crying. I mean, that, that was the hardest bit that I would, before I'd even had a conscious thought for the day, I would already be crying. The minute I woke up, I was crying. And that was, you know, that's healing from a level well beyond your consciousness. It, it, it was a, such a cleansing time. And, yeah, and I just worked my way through it and lovingly looked after myself in a way that I had looked after my patients. I started nurturing myself with, mm. with that same level of tenderness and gentleness and and I swam a lot. I um, found an ocean pool, you know, a pool with ocean water coming in and I went there a lot and swam and walked and, yeah. And, and then once I was ready to get back into life, I started playing music at children's preschools instead of pubs and clubs mm. to... A whole different audience. In prisons. <laughs> yeah, in prison. That's right. So yeah. I, I just decided to be around children and, and just did much more positive things. And then my blog took off. I ended up writing a book. Yeah, and uh, went from there. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing the way that when um, I'm not an overly metaphysical person, but when you hear certain things, you're sort of like, where the timing is just. Yes. Too, too, too much. Yeah, you're kind of like, okay, maybe there's there's something bigger going on. Sure. Um, yeah. At the moment, when you um, decided when when that took off, was that also something where uh, you wanted to really spend a lot of time now writing and creating and, and make that the focus? I just wanted to love my work uh. more than anything. That was the, the driving force. I just wanted to love my work, and I loved the idea of working from home mm. um that was a big part of it too because home was becoming a a stronger and stronger desire after so many years of moving around uh yeah so i um i think it was just a, a fact of of loving loving my work and but what you said about timing is 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 crucial you know i i wasn't ready before and as that took off i then wrote my book i released it independently and then, and I ended up meeting um, a partner and having uh, and falling pregnant. Um, the second month we tried, I was forty-four at the mm. time, so it was it was a whole life-changing time. And but the um, in the month or two before my baby was due, the my independently published book, Five Regrets of the Dying, had had taken off like crazy, and uh, and then. I was doing the night before she was born. I was. It took off to a whole new level. The, the few days before she was born, and so I was um, doing interviews from my hospital bed while I was in labour, <laughs> like all around the world, and I'm doing like email ones with the phone, you know, all of it. And I turned off my phone at eleven o'clock at night. And I was in labour, and there were still more I- interviews to do. And I was so, I was so sad because I'd worked for fourteen years as an artist to start making a living, and finally I was given that opportunity. But now I was a mum. I was about to become a mother, and that was way more important to me. And I wanted to, I wanted to be present with that. So the night before my daughter was born, I just sent out a huge. Well, it wasn't even a prayer. It was a demand, really. It was just like, I need help now. This is, this is too much. I can't do this on my own anymore. And uh, and then my daughter was born the next morning. While the midwife's getting me ready, while I'd finished off the last couple of email interviews. Well, I'm, you know, it, it was just awful. It was just the whole trying to serve two masters of career and motherhood. 
and then I had had gave birth to my baby, my darling little girl Eleanor. And within 24 hours of her being born, Hay House rang me up out of the blue, who was my dream publishing house, and offered me a contract, an international publishing contract, and uh, and my book is now in 27 languages. And uh, and so I was in hospital for five days, and so by the time I left the hospital, I had a baby and a publishing contract. Yeah, you had two babies. <laughs> I did, they're both yeah. birthing, and... You know, again, it comes down to that readiness and timing because I was doing it all on my own and um, not realizing how much I needed help as as my my work was growing, gaining momentum. And then finally, you know, it got to that point where the pain of having too much going on was, you know, where I've just said no, no more. I, I need help here, and and I was never that um, determined prior to that I thought I wouldn't mind help but finally I reached that crucial point where I just said no enough I'm not doing this anymore and so yeah what you say about timing yeah so uh, <laughs> here's here's my, where my mind is going with this I, I mean um, other than the visualization of you being in labor sort of like on the no, phone doing interviews here's the question that comes to me which is because it's 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 been a pattern a couple of times with you, and it's also this has been a pattern through you know the so many of the conversations I've been blessed to have with incredible people over the years now, and the question has stayed with me, and it's coming up again in this conversation with you, which is, do we have to reach that point in order to make the decisions and take the actions that allow us? to live from that moment forward differently and or for the universe to rise up and support our desire to do so? Or can we somehow move through those moments with more ease and still end up in the same place? I'm curious what you think about that. I love that question. We don't have to go through all that pain, but what we do have to go through is a place that brings us to that realisation so that I don't go through that pain now to make such decisions. I know that I have to honour myself and in doing so, things just come to me faster and faster um, by honouring you know, myself without all that pain of reaching breaking point. But I had to go through an awful lot to reach that point in myself where I give myself that permission and so, yeah, we don't have to go through the suffering and the pain to make those decisions. But, you know, I'm not going to say we have to go through the suffering and pain to reach that place, but but I am going to say that. Like, we, 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 have, we have to go through whatever our growth is to reach a place where we give ourselves permission. Yeah. Does that, mm. does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that, it's funny. You, you used the word earlier in our conversation, shattered. Yes. And that, that exact word has come up many times yes. in conversation. Yeah. And it's almost like the pieces have to come apart. Like you, you can't reassemble a puzzle that's already whole. Yeah. Even if it's whole and the, and the picture on the puzzle is, is one of torment. You know, like you can't, you can't take that puzzle and move the pieces around to create a picture of joy or grace or ease when the puzzle remains whole. It's like mm. you have to shatter the pieces and 
all of them have to end up on the floor. You can't just have one. Yes. You know, so I guess, the, but then the question is, you know, does, you know, the, so that it's like the shattering, the breaking apart of the current reality has to happen. But then the question is, can you do that through, you know, w- what is the, the inciting incident and does it have to be one of great pain or can it be one where in some way you experience it more gently, you know, uh, I don't know the answer to that. Well, <laughs> I've, the, I've seen a lot of examples of yes. pain. Yes, the, the pain all comes down to the willingness, you know, the resistance to surrendering. Yeah, you know, that's that's all it is, and you know, and we can reach that place where we are willing to surrender, and most of us only reach it through pain. Mm-hmm. Then there's yeah, there's there's no resistance because you know you're fine if you've surrendered. You you go with it, and you give yourself permission and your trust and and get on with it but until we reach that place where we're resistant to to surrendering to our better self you know which is the bottom line then there's, there's always going to be pain so mm. perhaps that shattering is is an essential part of it of the journey yeah mm. unfortunately well fortunately fortunately yeah, yeah. Yes. maybe the shattering is our surrender to the truth of uncertainty Absolutely, and we we think we've got it all worked out before that, perhaps. Yeah. But um, but the uncertainty is where the magic happens. Yeah, so agree. It's where possibility lies. Oh, it's just terrifying, but it's where possibility yes. lies. Yes, yeah. yeah I, when I think of how how I live now and how many blessings flow so easily and naturally to me, without much conscious thought at all, um, it, it just makes me immensely grateful that I face going through that time you know and let myself be shattered yeah mm. which uh is a beautiful place i think for us to come full circle mm. so the name of this is good life project so if i offer that phrase out to you to live a good life what comes up uh just be happy just just be happy give yourself permission to be happy just just be happy yeah that's i could go on and on about happiness but that's the bottom line make a choice as as, as every day as best you can towards happiness Thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining in this week's conversation. You know, if you've actually stayed till this point in the conversation, I'm guessing there's a pretty good bet that you've gotten something out of this episode, some, some nugget, some idea. If that is right and you feel like sharing, then by all means, go ahead. We love when you share these conversations and get the word out. And if you wouldn't mind, I would so appreciate if you would just take a few seconds, jump onto iTunes or use your app, and just give us a quick rating or review. When you do that, it helps get the word out, helps let more people know about the conversations we're hosting here, and it gives us all the ability to spread the word and make a bigger difference in more people's lives. As always, thank you so much for your kindness, your wisdom, and your attention. Wishing you a fantastic rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? 
for me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.